Greetings, everyone. I'm Jeffrey K. Lyons, and it's Tuesday, October 24th, and this is Narrative Wars. As we discussed last week, the war between Israel and Hamas would become a narrative war of words and images. And this week, we expose this developing story. The U.S. Congress remains without a speaker. Will there be a breakthrough this coming week? And trouble in the mouse's house. The entertainment empire known as Disney seems to be collapsing and they still don't seem to be self-aware of what's causing the problem. And finally, in this week's The Bigger Picture segment, we continue our frightening October series. You would not believe what climate activists want you to live in, all with the goal in mind to reach net zero objectives. All of this on today's episode of Narrative Wars. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons, and you don't want to miss this. We the people are sick and tired. Let's peel back the curtain of confusion to shed light upon the mainstream media madness. And now, Narrative Wars with your host, Jeffrey K. Lyons. Well, it seems that the Narrative Wars posse has formed and the social media app Getter is where the posse is gathering. Just go to at Jeffrey K. Lyons on Getter, that's G-E-T-T-R, to follow this program where you can be a part of the conversation. So right now, we're going to dip into the Narrative Wars mailbag. In response to last week's story regarding the Israel-Hamas attack of October 7, 2023, Timothy Bear posted on our Getter feed, quote, Israel gets attacked, Hamas PLO Hezbollah supporters in Congress immediately turn narrative to making their terrorist friends the victims, unquote. Well, thank you for that feedback, Timothy Bear. Indeed, this has been the pattern during my entire lifetime. Israel, the recipient of the recent October 7th attack, uh, which is being compared to the atrocities of the World War II Holocaust in barbarity, cruelty, evil intent, uh, murdering and injuring thousands of Jews on the same day, raping, beheading the Jews, and even setting some human beings on fire. But within the, a few days of all these atrocities being committed by Hamas against the people of Jerusalem, against the Jewish nation, within a few days of these Hamas-committed atrocities, we see what? We see Hamas is now being portrayed in the propaganda press and also uh, in Congress by PLO Hezbollah supporters, just as Timothy Bear has pointed out, and they are being portrayed as, guess what? Oh, the victims? Uh, the victims and the anti-Semitic members of the U.S. Congress are fueling the flame of hatred 
towards Israel. Also reaching into the mailbag, Red Pill Music makes the following comment after we ran our Lahaina Maui cover-up story last week. Red Pill Music writes, So let us not forget the people of Lahaina, nor those responsible for the tragedy. May justice be done and the heavens fall on those responsible. May God give the people peace and comfort. Unquote. Thank you for that red pill music. Indeed, this week, let us continue to keep in our prayers uh, the peace of Israel, but also let us not forget the terrible tragedy in our own nation that occurred in Lahaina, Maui, and that justice will be done regarding Lahaina, and that survivors who have lost family members in the Lahaina fire will receive the truth about how their government failed them on August the 8th, 2023. Well, the Narrative Wars posse continues to expand and soon will reach 4,000 downloads of this podcast. Yeah, thank you, thank you. That's a great accomplishment. Well, thank you for all you people standing around in the studio. We appreciate that. Now, more than ever, when the woke Nazis are trying to silence our voices, please five-star rate, follow, and share this program with two to three like-minded people. If everyone who enjoys listening to Narrative Wars shares this program with two to three like-minded patriots, we'll send a message that our voices will not be silenced. At Narrative Wars, we refuse to bow down to the woke globalist agenda that wants to take away our liberty. Your support of this program is greatly appreciated. And now, on to our first story. Well, we turn now to our first story, which has to do with the growing narrative war between Israel and Hamas. So let's take a listen to cut number 1B. It comes as tensions flare in the war with Hamas and Israel trading blame over a hospital explosion that killed as many as 500 people in Gaza. Israel says Islamic Jihad, a junior partner to Hamas funded by Iran, is to blame. New images of a Gaza City hospital where the Hamas-run health ministry says hundreds have been killed. Hamas blames an Israeli airstrike. Israel's military denies involvement, saying the hospital was hit by a misfired rocket from Palestinian militants. Victims seen rushed to a different hospital for help where covered bodies were already seen lined up outside. The story you just heard was put out by KTLA 5 in Southern California. That was October the 17th, 2023. So the story was uh, still developing, and it was called Explosion Kills Hundreds at Gaza Hospital, Hamas and Israel Trade Blame. Well, there's a number of things factually wrong about this story. Uh, we're going to listen to a number of other cuts, and we're going to unpack this. Number one, the story claims that a hospital was bombed and hundreds died. Well, when this first story came out, it was reported that two to 300 were killed. And then the number got bigger, 500. But what we find out is that these facts are not exactly accurate. Each side trading blame, yes, we... Uh, heard that this sort of thing would happen, and Palki Sharma pointed that out in the earlier cut. Now, the important thing to remember is that there was a hospital that was next to an explosion, but the explosion took place in a parking lot. 
the parking lot was next to a hospital and there was some debris that exploded. Some windows were broken next to the hospital, but the hospital was never hit. And this number 500, uh, that is unsubstantiated. We don't know. Recovered bodies were lined up outside of the parking lot for a press conference, for a photo op. I've spoken to soldiers at a different war. When I was a university professor, I spoke to soldiers that were in Iraq, American soldiers, and they said when they were on the ground, they saw news crews filming and the crew would show up and there was a vehicle there that was burning, that was an American vehicle. And as soon as the camera showed up, there were a number of Iraqi citizens that danced around, celebrated, chanted different slogans. And as soon as the cameras were turned off, those people disappeared. So there was no ongoing protest regarding the United States of America. The whole thing was staged. And this is what they do. And again, we see this. This was staged, a staged press conference in a parking lot next to a hospital in order to declare, in this case, that Israel had bombed a hospital. It never happened. Let's take a listen to this next cut, CNN, October 18th, 2023. And this is very interesting because CNN made the big mistake of having retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling explain video and evidence that was put out a few days after the explosion next to a hospital. Lieutenant General Hurtling is explaining what he sees, much to the chagrin of CNN's Abby Phillip. Let's take a listen to this cut number 1C. And for a closer look at what we do know and what we don't about this blast, I want to bring in CNN military analyst, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling here. Just take a look at this. This is um, some footage that seems to show a rocket going up here, and then there, something happens that's pretty catastrophic. Mm -hmm. When you see this, what do you see? I see a flame out of a rocket. But when you see that rocket going forward, this happens a lot with these kind of rockets that are supplied by Iran, Abby. It, it is a rocket motor that doesn't work. It gets a certain distance and then it just flames out and a rocket has a trajectory of a brick once it doesn't have a force behind it, so it immediately drops. But what you also have when that happens is the fuel that's part of the rocket that hasn't burned. So when it hits the ground, we'll see next, Here's the actual uh, uh, explosive isn't that big, but what is big is the fuel that it hasn't used. That caused a lot of cars in that parking lot to yeah. burn. We see the after effects of that. So it had an effect of the explosive capability of a rocket, which is relatively small, but a lot of fuel blowing up after it that didn't burn off the rocket motor. So th this is evidence of certainly not a, a bomb that would come off an, of an aircraft. You see the pockmarks, the blown out windows, but not a whole lot else. I mean, there's not a whole lot of damages to the building. Now, the doctors inside of the building said that there were patients that were injured. That could have been from the blast glass flying inside of, of the building, but it certainly wasn't a strike on the hospital itself. And 
So, oh, it wasn't a strike on the hospital itself, but all of the major lamestream media uh, services were all saying uh, Israel had bombed uh, Gaza and they had bombed a hospital and 500 people died. Uh, Where was this information coming from? Well, it was coming from sources in Gaza and it was Yes, greatly exaggerated. Listen, when you look at the pictures, when you see it, and we're going to put the links uh, connected with this show, the links are going to be there uh, in the show notes, you'll see that there were perhaps a dozen cars that were uh, burnt to a crisp, but uh, it wasn't a very wide radius. And it's very doubtful that uh, 500 people were standing around uh, a dozen or so cars in a parking lot. Uh, so this number of 500 people uh, being killed in a parking lot is very doubtful. Now, uh, the blast zone, yes, it was in a parking lot. Uh, that is confirmed. The rocket flamed out. It fell, as we heard uh, from the uh, Lieutenant General Mark uh, Hurtling. Uh, the uh, rocket fell like a brick. Uh, there was still fuel in the rocket, and that caused a fire in that parking lot. Evidence originated from the Gaza Strip, and there are pictures and videos of that, and you can see that in the show note links. Uh, the CNN video shows that satellite trajectory shows that it was a Hamas rocket that was fired from somewhere behind uh, the hospital towards Israel. And uh, when that rocket flared out, well, it dropped in the parking lot of the hospital. Fortunately, it did not fall on top of the hospital. Uh, Let's continue on. We've got one more cut here. This uh, piece, this was uh, Breitbart, October 21st, 2023. And this is Bill Mayer, and he's uh, talking to a uh, writer with the New York Times, and he's challenging this story, Israeli strike kills hundreds at the hospital. And uh, basically, he's challenging the narrative that the Israelis did it, and he's pointing out, no, the Israelis did not do it. It was Hamas that did it. But Bill Mayer doesn't challenge the fact that another major part of the story is still wrong. The hospital was never struck. The hospital did not take a direct hit. It was in a parking lot. That's what exploded. The explosion took place in a parking lot and a number of cars were wiped out. And Mayer does not point that out. So he lets that one slide. But in order that he would have clicks uh, next to his name, and he challenges the New York Times that, it no, it was not Israel that was responsible uh, for this, uh, but it was Hamas that was responsible. Uh, let's take a listen to this cut number 1D. I may get upset uh, while this is playing, and you might hear the buzzer going off uh, each time uh, Bill Mayer asserts uh, that a hospital was bombed. Here we go, cut number 1D. Now, I don't want to get you in trouble with the people who write your paycheck, but the New York Times is the story somewhat this this week because they put out a headline, uh, Israeli strike, the, the horrible ha- happening at the hospital, the hospital in, in Gaza was blown up. I'm not quite sure why this is quite the scandal they think it is, but I, I agree, it's a, it's a terrible headline. Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. <laughs> 
That was the headline. I feel like putting Palestinian say at the end of it saves their bacon a little bit. It's kind of, I mean, you, you could interpret that like Palestinians say. But I agree, it's terrible to just put the first part, Israeli strike kills hundreds, when we know now it did not. Uh, so without trying to get myself yes. in trouble with my employer, I, I, I have been covering this story for 25 years. I was editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. Um, the media has a real problem there because when they cover Palestinian issues, they are covering an authoritarian society right. where people live in fear of telling the truth. So everything that comes out of it has to be checked, double-checked, and triple-checked. When you're talking about Palestinians in this case, you're actually talking about Hamas. Every time health authorities are right. mentioned in Gaza, it's not like uh, the FDA showed up or something, or the Red Cross. It's, it, it's, it's Hamas. And this, this goes to the basic difference between what we have on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, on the Israeli side, for all of its problems, it is an open democratic society. Journalists do not live in fear that the government is going to hurt them for what they report. When you're writing about the Palestinians, they are living in fear. So think of it, it's not the same, but to some extent it's like reporting from North Korea or South Korea. Everything that comes out of North Korea has to be treated with a major, massive amount of, of skepticism. Right. And things that are coming out of Israel are likely true because it kind of resembles the society we have here. Well, we're just going to have to... Yeah, there it is. I can see it right there, right there. Yeah, there's a flag on the field. Yeah, I thought so. I thought so. All right. Good eye, everybody. Listen, the New York Times reporter is making a very uh, Lamas excuse that, oh, well, you know, we can't really get very uh, accurate information out of Hamas, but... Uh, well, we took their word for it and took their headline and took their story. Uh, but we covered it by saying Palestinians say in the headline. Uh, he admitted that he gets more truthful, that New York Times gets more truthful uh, information from the Israelis because it's a more of a open, a democratic type of society that journalists aren't uh, in fear for reporting the truth. And yet... At the same time, he admits that they ran a really poorly vetted headline. Well, Bill Mayer gives them a pass. Again, he does not even expose the fact that the uh, bombing never occurred on the hospital at all. Apparently, Bill Mayer isn't even aware that there's something called CNN. I can't believe that I'm quoting CNN. But uh, CNN got footage and information and they... They brought in retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, and he exposed the fact that, no, the hospital was never bombed. It was the parking lot. So all of this just shows you that, yes, there is a narrative war going on. It is all being designed so that Hamas can generate sympathy for the Palestinian cause. And so you see all these woke universities and their students parading around uh, in favor of the Palestinians. You see woke uh, people in Congress parading around and making speeches on the uh, behalf of the Palestinians. But look, and it's all designed in order to sympathize with Hamas. 
in the area which we call the Gaza Strip. Uh, let's move on to our next piece. Moving on to our next piece, uh, Jim Jordan is out. Uh, he ran for Speaker of the House. There were three votes, and then there was another caucus vote, and he was not able to continue with his campaign among the Republican caucus uh, to become the next Speaker of the House. Let's take a listen to this. This is uh, from NBC News, October 20th, 2023. Let's listen to this. This is cut number uh, 2A. Let's get right to it with NBC News senior Capitol Hill correspondent Garrett Hake. So, Garrett, Jim Jordan, no longer the Speaker designee. What happens next? What happens here? Yeah, Jim Jordan will not be the next Speaker of the House, having lost two votes today. The one on the floor that the whole country saw and a second private secret ballot vote held just a few minutes ago by House Republicans uh, and House Republicans alone in the basement of the Capitol. It was in that vote that a majority of the conference basically cast a vote of no confidence in Jordan as the speaker candidate, deciding that it was time for him to step down. That set forward a series of other uh, decisions where now Congress is basically done for the day. They're going to come back next week and try again. But Jordan, after three consecutive votes in which he only lost support among the Republican conference, uh, now bowing out of this race at the behest of the rest of his party. So a uh, couple takeaways here. Jim Jordan has lost his bid for the Speaker of the House representing the Republican Party, uh, which has the majority in the U.S. House. Slim majority, but they do have the majority. There were three floor votes, and then following that, there was a caucus vote. Now, what is a caucus vote? Now, it's not a secret vote, this happens all the time on a weekly basis in the United States of America in the House of Representatives. Basically, when a motion is coming forward or an important issue is being uh, pushed forward, they hold votes within their members. Now, you basically have two caucuses because there's two parties. You've got Republican, you've got Democrat. Yes, there are independents, but usually independents will decide to caucus with either the Democrats or the Republicans. For So for practical reasons, you've basically got two caucuses, a Democrat and Republican dominated caucuses. So this happens all the time on a weekly basis, and they meet uh, in their caucus room, uh, which is separate from the floor of the United States House of Representatives, and they hold votes and they discuss uh, what measures they're going to put forward. So there was nothing nefarious going on here. They just held another vote and said, you know, can we, should we continue uh, to push forward and uh, say that Jim Jordan is going to be our next Speaker of the House. And he didn't have enough votes. He lost momentum, basically, in the caucus vote. So they're going to hold another caucus vote. Uh, it's going to be on uh, Monday uh, and then uh, Tuesday, uh, the following day, which is going to be the same day this comes out, uh, Tuesday, October the 24th. Uh, then they're going to put it to the floor uh, on uh, the floor of the House of Representatives. Of course, they have to call for quorum first before they do that. And uh, they say they're going to meet in the evening. Let's take a listen to this follow-up. This is from C-SPAN, October 20th, 2023, uh, explaining what they're going to do uh, moving forward. This is Representative Patrick McHenry 
talking about next steps uh, for the uh, speaker election. Patrick McHenry, uh, Mick Henry from the uh, uh, state of North Carolina. Uh, let's listen to this. This is cut number 2B. House Republicans will return on Monday at 6.30 p.m. for a candidate forum, followed by uh, an election process on Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. The reason why I made that decision is we need space and time for candidates to talk to other members. It's fair to say that Leader Scalise wasn't given adequate time. He had 24 hours to campaign. I don't think that was right for him. Our nominee, Jordan, was given a little more time. Not right for him. The conference made a decision that we're going to move forward with a new speaker nominee today. But the space and time for a reset is, I think, an important thing for House Republicans. Now, on the national security front, we have fully constituted committees. Committees can still work, and they are working. Chairman Rogers, Chairman Turner, Chairman McCall, Chairwoman Granger are all working. I want to thank the administration for their briefings on the supplemental request for national security. Our committees are working with the administration, and the goal there for our committees is to be ready to respond legislatively once we have a duly elected Speaker of the House. And it's my goal to be talking to you at this time next Friday as chairman of the Financial Services Committee. Now, part of this has to do with the nuts and bolts of how Congress works and the machinations of the gears of Congress. And so what is he talking about? Uh, candidates and they don't have enough time to campaign. Well, re recognize that the Speaker of the House is extremely important. Uh, that position, uh, he is the person who determines, he or she is the per person who determines who the members are that chair and co-chair the committees uh, that make up Congress. And it's out of those committees that come uh, a variety of bills. And of course, some of the most powerful committees are the finance committees. It's always the money uh, that is extremely important, how the money is being spent and what the budget will be. So these people who want to become uh, the next Speaker of the House they need adequate time to speak personally, one-on-one, -on -one, with other members of Congress, especially other committee members. Uh, committee members don't want to lose their seats on their committees. The First of all, they want to be assured that. And then, of course, the uh, Speaker of the House could change who all the other members are on those committees. So any of the people who are happy with the committees they're on, they don't want to lose their seat on that committee or be shuffled around from committee to committee. So I'm sure that's part of the conversation also. So uh, there are a number of things that they discuss one-on-one, -on -one, and that takes time. Uh, as of this airing of this program, there's about six different people who are putting their name out there in order to become the next Speaker of the House. So there's a lot of conversations that are taking place, and it may not even be adequate uh, between now and uh, Tuesday of this week. So we'll see. You know, they might have to even push it out another day uh, for, you know, a few hundred members 
to each uh, feel uh, comfortable uh, with who they select. And they've got six different choices. And uh, they are suddenly faced with this just within the last few days. So that's what's taking place. So the public needs to understand that this is a process and it's occurring in the Republican majority. It's the Republicans that have the majority of the House of Representatives, so they need to do this. Uh, the Speaker is, as we mentioned, he determines the chairpersons and the vice chairs, the co-chairs of the different committees. Now, also, Section 7, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution, very important. The clause says that all bills for raising revenue for the United States government, they have to start in where? The United States House of Representatives. Now, the Senate does certain things that only the Senate uh, does, which is they're the ones that uh, bring up nominations and they're the ones that interview and put uh, Supreme Court justices in place. The House of Representatives doesn't have anything to do with that. But likewise, in terms of funding and the annual budget and all the different budget bills, there's supposed to be numerous budget bills. It's not supposed to be a once a year uh, porculus, as the late great uh, Rush Limbaugh used to say. It's not supposed to be one big up or down vote porculus bill that's voted on a few days before Christmas. No, it's supposed to be multiple bills. And those bills are supposed to be run through numerous committees. And that all takes place in the House of Representatives. We're going to see how all that plays out between now and the end of this calendar year. Narrative Wars continues to expand its audience, both in the United States and internationally. It's early in October, but we want to give a shout out to our listeners who are joining us this month from a variety of locations. The United Kingdom, Brazil, Australia, Equatorial Guinea, and Israel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Narrative Wars and supporting this program. Finally, a big shout out to those listeners who are now following us on Getter. I enjoy receiving your feedback, reading some of those comments on the air as we did this week. And again, you can follow us on the social media app Getter. That's G-E-T-T-R. And just search for at Jeffrey K. Lyons. For more information, you can visit our website at narrativewars.org. O-R-G. Also, when you listen to us on your favorite podcasting app, please five-star rate, follow, and send our podcast to two to three like-minded friends. That's how we continue to expand the Narrative Wars posse. We truly appreciate your support. You are the reason why we do this program. And now, let's continue. Moving on with this story, there's a problem in the mouse's house. Uh, from the Atlantis Report, August 2nd, 2023, Disney goes into crisis mode as stock crashes and prices rise. Let's take a listen to this. Uh, this is a cut number three. Today's menu includes the release from the Wall Street Journal saying, Disney World has not felt this empty in years. However, the exorbitant park admission prices which have risen significantly quicker than the inflation rate over the past four decades, are having an equal or greater deterrent effect on the business. While fans believe Disney is facing a self-induced crisis, analysts say, no, there's definitely something else to it. 
But could it be true that the famous entertainment behemoth is the architect of its downfall, judging by the rising prices and empty stalls? Disney's recent Star Wars-themed Galactic Star Cruiser attraction appears to have grossly underestimated the number of parents willing to spend thousands of dollars to have their children spend two nights with aliens and droids. There is likely a correlation between Disney's decision to pander to a smaller, wealthier, and more privileged customer base and its shift towards more ideologically charged entertainment content. The disinterest of the Disney theme parks in attracting middle-class Americans creates a de facto permission notice for the Disney creative class to adopt more antagonistic stances on controversial cultural issues. Trouble in the Mouse's House. Indeed, trouble in the Mouse's House as Disney, which used to be a staple of mainstream America, has transformed itself into woke Disney, which is pushing ideological boundaries which are not congruent with mainstream America. Here is a follow-up story in The Guardian, October 15th, 2023. Disney shares have now slumped by almost 60%. 60% and subscriber numbers have declined to 146 million from a high of 164 million. So their streaming services are taking a big hit. Their stock has taken a 60% hit in value because investors are running for the door when it comes to Disney. Now, the person in charge, Iger, he plans to slash 7,000 jobs as part of a $5.5 billion cost-cutting drive. And so this is designed in order to bolster, to prop up, to pump up the stock value. Uh, he's going to cut expenses. And also part of the discussion, Iger is looking at selling off some of the uh, assets at Disney, which are proven moneymakers, such as ABC Network, which is owned by Disney, and the cable sports giant ESPN, which Disney acquired back in 1996. So what can we make of all of that? Well, woke Disney is not attractive to Main Street Americas. Secondly, Main Street America is not interested in LGBTQ plus ABC, baby one, two, three, you and me propaganda. And therefore they're spending, that is mainstream America is spending their vacation dollars. Guess where? Elsewhere, not at Disney. Bye-bye. The Mouse House disaster is a perfect fishbowl microcosm of large corporate America, which is currently trying to lecture and push a progressive and essentially godless postmodern worldview upon mainstream America. Like Target, which we've covered in uh, past uh, editions of Narrative Wars, like Target and other out-of-touch large corporate entities, Americans are choosing to spend their hard-earned income elsewhere. This is a textbook study of woke is broke. And now we turn to the final segment of our program, which we like to call The Bigger Picture. 
In today's edition of The Bigger Picture, we open with a strange and yet true tale of generational gaslighting and how decades of climate activism is beginning to turn back the hands of time. Let's take a listen to this cut as we begin our The Bigger Picture segment. Net Zero is the biggest scam uh, since you last received an email from Nigeria. Uh, it's a scam that only helps the Chinese Communist Party because if we sign up to deindustrialize our own nation, it'll just be a blank check for China to continue to, to pursue its aggressive uh, uh, and illegal conduct uh, in our region. Uh, they're not going to uh, slow down their industrialization. We know that. We know that because last year China said that they would sign up to net zero emissions by 2060. And in the same year, they installed 38.4 gigawatts of new coal-fired power stations. That's double the amount of coal-fired power stations in this country. So you should always look at what people do, not what they say. And I don't think we should, as a Western world, put on massive big Chinese red handcuffs on our industry, on our jobs, and then give a free ride uh, to the country that is threatening the, the security uh, uh, and democracy of our region. Uh, so there's no way we should sign up to this agenda because we just cannot trust China to do the same. So that piece, Sky News Australia, and you can find it in our show notes. If you haven't heard the term net zero, then you certainly will. It's everywhere. It's grown out of the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the 1997 Kyoto Protocol. This agreement has been ratified by about 192 different parties representing nations and other groups which affect national energy policies. According to the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change, quote, the Kyoto Protocol operationalizes the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change by committing industrialized countries and economies in transition to limit and reduce greenhouse gases emissions in accordance with agreed-upon targets. Now, the U.S. didn't sign this agreement, but U.S. policy is reflecting adherence to it. The massive reinvestment and push towards reshaping the entire U.S. car industry is one example with the goal of replacing half of the vehicles on the road in the United States of America uh, with EV cars, electronic vehicles, in the next 25, 30 years, or perhaps even sooner. The demonization of gas stoves, the demonization of cattle and beef and the oil and gas industries, all of these have profound ripple effects especially the oil and gas industries, they have a profound ripple effect on the petrochemical industries and thousands of byproducts which Americans use every day. And we don't even realize that these products are spinoff from the petroleum industries. As in the Sky News piece that we've just heard, all of this has one intent, and that is to de-industrialize the Western nations of the world, redistributing wealth, which is basically Marxism, so that China and those nations aligned with China 
will become the next world superpower. And we are racing towards that cliff. The World Economic Forum even wants those in the Western world to live in mud huts so that we'll feel better about contributing to the net zero economy. It's all about feelings, folks. So, you know, they want you to get rid of your house that you live in or apartment or condo and move into a mud hut. But hey, you're going to feel better about it. All of this is being driven by good feelings about saving the planet. We need to get rid of those gas stoves. We need to live in mud huts. We need to drive these inefficient EV cars, which are twice as expensive as gasoline-powered vehicles in some cases. Never mind that the strip mining that's required to yield the rare earth minerals primarily comes from China and Africa. EV batteries will make China enormously wealthy while destroying the earth because, as I've mentioned, you need to strip mine and destroy the surface of the earth in order to get these rare earth minerals, which are used for EV batteries, out of the earth. Never mind that Africans are laboring like slaves in strip mines under horrific conditions in order that we can feel better about driving our EV cars and saving the planet. Never mind that the fact that most abundant greenhouse gas is, hold it, wait for it, it's water vapor, which is 90%. While in contrast, carbon dioxide is only 0.04% of atmospheric gas. That's it. Never mind the fact that an increase in carbon dioxide actually increases the growth of plants on planet Earth, thus providing more food for living things that need plants to live. And if you think I'm making some of these facts up, some of these statistics up, just download the free app called Inconvenient Facts. There's also a companion book by Gregory Wrightstone, Inconvenient Facts, The Science That Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know. The book is available on Amazon. It came out in 2017. Well, I decided to test my theory that people have no idea how uninformed they are and how we have all been gaslighted by the media and our public education system over the last three decades, more. The other day I asked a mother and her teenage daughter a simple question. What percentage of the Earth's atmosphere do you believe is made up of carbon dioxide? The mother responded, 75%. And the daughter responded, 50%. And they were both shocked and dismayed when I told them that the true figure is 0.04%. Of course, my goal in telling you all of this is not to make you feel bad or guilty if you just purchased an EV vehicle. My advice in this podcast, as in previous podcasts, is to own at least one gasoline-powered vehicle because there's not enough charging stations available to travel across the country in an EV vehicle without encountering hardship. 
The takeaway of the net zero nonsense is that we are in a fifth generation warfare. And this is the most important point here. We're leading up to this point. We are in fifth generation warfare right now. Our nation is at war. You don't have to announce it as World War III or World War IV. We're in a fifth generation warfare right now. And who are we fighting against? We're fighting against China, the World Economic Forum, and the old money European billionaires who are all playing the long game. The true strength of the United States of America is not just our military. It's more than that. The true strength of the United States of America is the American worker and the American economy itself. According to MGM Research, at the end of 2006, looking at gross domestic product, in 2006, Chinese gross domestic product was $2.8 trillion, and the U.S. GDP was $13.8 trillion. But all of that changed in the next 14 years. By the end of 2020, IMS forecasted that the GDP would reach $15.5 trillion for China whereas the U.S. GDP would reach $22.3 trillion. And that's fairly accurate. So what does that mean? Well, back in 2006, the gross domestic product, the output of the economy of the United States of America, it was almost five times larger than China, 492 but in 2020, the Chinese economy had grown so rapidly and the GDP that the U.S. economy was only 33% larger than the Chinese economy. We are losing the fifth generation warfare. This whole idea that, oh, the United States is now going to be a service economy and we can just ship off manufacturing uh, to China and other countries around the world, we were lied to because what we did when we shipped off those factories to other nations of the world, we weakened our nation. We have lost the strategic advantage. The economy of the United States of America is the most strategically powerful advantage that we have in terms of national security. How did the United States become the new world superpower after World War II? So let's turn back the clock. We're talking about an economy being the most important strategic advantage and the economy of a nation being tied to national security. So what's the takeaway of this week's scary tale? Don't throw away your current home and turn it in for a mud hut. This will slow down the economy by putting a lot of people out of work. And your family members may not be happy living in a mud hut. 
Don't panic about being called a net zero denier, not going along with the climate change hysteria. It doesn't mean that you have to stop recycling or being responsible by keeping the environment clean. Educate yourself. Get the free app, Inconvenient Facts. Ask your friends what percentage of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide and ask them if they knew that an increase in carbon dioxide is actually fertilizer for plants. And finally, learn what fifth generation warfare is and how it's possible to actually defeat a nation without firing a single shot from a rifle or a cannon. Finally, become a critical thinker. Do some reading and some research on your own. We live in a time and an age when information is handed to us in sound bites, memes, and brief video clips designed to primarily entertain us and be clickbait, but not necessarily to challenge us to think critically. The founders of the United States thought long and hard about the type of country that they wanted to live in and the liberties that they would experience and later pass on to their children and their grandchildren. In a way, each successive generation in America must wrestle with these same questions. What type of country do we want to leave behind for others? when our time on earth is done? Is the American dream still alive and will it thrive in the future? These are the type of questions that we should be asking ourselves as we, as Americans, unify around the foundational principles upon which this nation was formed. I believe there's still hope and that America will continue to be the land of the free, and the home of the brave. And that's a comforting thought. Until next time for Narrative Wars, I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired. So tired.